On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with ornithologist and poet Drew Lanham. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. It's great to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me, Krista. I really appreciate it. It's good to be here. Or there. (laughs) Or wherever we are. Yeah. Whatever place means right now. (laughs) Um, uh, do um, Do you have the home place and Sparrow Envy with you? I do. I do. Oh, great. Okay. Because I, so, so I think um, I, I have some things marked that I might ask you to read at the end. Okay. But I'm also happy for you to, um, you know, pull something out if you feel, if you feel <laughs> called um, spontaneously. And also, you know, to, yeah. So I think, yeah. So absolutely feel free if you, if you just feel like you want to read something as we're going um, that illustrates something we're talking about in conversation. But also know that, um when we get to the end, I want to just have you read some some pieces of your writing as well. Sounds good. Okay. Um, Zach, are we good from your end? Oh. Uh, let me go to settings, right? Okay. Let's see here. Setting, system, sound. Uh, Output is road. And input is road. Okay. Um, Great. Um, Well, here we are. Is it true that you're in a writing shed? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I well, yeah, that's that's what I uh I I play it off as. It's it's a little shed called the Thicket. It was originally a storage house and I mm-hmm. I converted it out of necessity for um for hoarding stuff that I want to surround me and also mm-hmm. to to have a little escape pod. So yeah. so that's where I am today. Yeah, I'm actually, I would say, out of necessity, but it feels like more out of despair, um, (laughs) building (laughs) a writing, what I'm calling a writing retreat in my backyard. I don't actually want it. I mean, I I actually want to think and write back there rather because in my house, right, I do the Zoom and I Mm. do um, work. um, And... Yeah, especially since here we are with all these months of um, being in this one place. So, um, yeah, so I'm jealous. I'm jealous well, <laughs> that you already have yours. Well, well Krista, it, I mean, it, it came together really out of despair in many ways because I was, uh-huh. uh, you know, my story is one of really sort of searching for space constantly because as a child, I really didn't have it. I sort of always shared it. I didn't have my own room. I shared my grandmother's bedroom and the bed for um, 
a good while until I got bigger. And then, but, hmm. so this, this place is, um, it's Thoreauvian in a way in that, you know, Thoreau's Walden was really not very far from his mother's home. And this is the side yard. It's not the backyard only because I couldn't get it in the backyard, Right. but it's, and so it sits like this appendix of a, of a, building on the side of the house but it's important when i i don't get out here i miss it mm-hmm. so yeah i understand we can, i can mm-hmm. empathize with the with that d- desire of despair yeah um i i want to read um what i think are the first lines of the home place the introduction um you wrote i just actually have i typed it out but i just want to read it from the book because that's special um I am a man in love with nature. I am an eco-addict, consuming everything that the outdoors offers in all its in in its all-you-can-sense seasonal buffet. I am a wildling born of forests and fields and more comfortable on unpaved back roads and winding woodland paths than in any place where concrete, asphalt, and crowds prevail. <laughs> um, you write also in that same, somewhere in that same near the same passage. Why does my blood blood run wild? That's a question you've asked. Um, I just want to ask as we start, like how far back, and can you even feel it in your body? Does that question and your sense of being this way go? Wow, probably to I don't know four or five years old, maybe. Hmm. You know, that that point in time when I was given some freedom, allowed to wander a little bit beyond my my parents' eye view or my grandmother's eye view. So I would I would think maybe then, but certainly by six, hmm. because by six, I was in in Head Start and that kind of thing and um, and out and and sort of wandering around the yard at least and um, not long after that had my first bicycle so I, I think back to those times with my grandmother and if I was still sleeping in the bed with her then it would have been five or six years old that um that that places me at her place and so when it places me there i'm thinking of her throwing out handfuls of grits to what she calls snowbirds um that we know mm-hmm. as juncos and but sparrows and all these other things or her talking about owls being bad omen when they were calling around the house so most of my life i've i've thought about things beyond four walls and and what was um, in the woods or what was roaming in the darkness that I couldn't see. So it's been, it's been a long time. Hmm. Um, you call your grandmother, your mamatha? Mamatha. Mamatha. Mm-hmm. And yet um, you kind of, it sounds like you kind of grew up both in your home, your parents' home and which called the ranch and your and Mamatha's house, the ramshackle, and that you kind of straddled these physical and symbolic worlds that both imprinted you. 
Yeah, I'm 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 an edge creature, I guess. I kind of straddled hmm. a lot of worlds, it seems, but that was the arrangement. My grandmother, my grandfather died in in '61, and um, I was born in '65. And and when I was born, and and named Joseph. I, I was sort of my grandfather's namesake. His middle name was Samuel. My middle name is Drew, but my grandmother asked for me. So I I was with her for um, about half of my life up until I was uh, 15. So mm-hmm. I, I slept over there every night. I usually, and she kept me until it was, until I was of school age. And so that imprint was very, very strong. Um, just sort of her coming of age in the uh, in the twenties and thirties and and forties meant that I sort of grew up with a very different sensibility. She never called mm-hmm. a refrigerator a, a refrigerator; it was an ice box. And so, and, and so, refrigerator. <laughs> I grew up with that language too the, in the, Oklahoma. There yeah. you go. I mean, yeah. so we yeah. never we never lose that. Yeah. You know, uh, it's not a, a gas station is a filling station. Um, yeah. You know, all, all those things really informed me there. So that was a, a big imprint. But then when, um, I, again, I was able to, to roam, I would walk over to my parents' house, the ranch, which back then it seemed like it was miles away. But really, it's only about a quarter of a mile yeah. at most. And and that was that was a modern place. Both my parents were school teachers, and my siblings were over there. And um, some of my toys were there. Not many, but some of them were over there. And um, so that was the other half of of my existence was at the ranch. So yeah, I was straddling mm-hmm. two worlds. In in Edgefield County, South Carolina, um, where you where you were your your home place where you grew up. Um, I wonder if you would just uh, describe it to me ecologically, which is how you, it feels to me, you describe um, places. Um, I I will say I was really intrigued that even when you talked about, there's a place you talk about the political boundaries drawn by human hands of Edgefield County, Mm. give it the appearance on maps of a cartoonish chicken's head. So even then you were making bird analogies. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, you know, it's, it's an odd place. It's a beautiful place ecologically. And as, as Edgefield is on the edge of, of the Piedmont or at least portions of it in the upper or inner coastal plain, um, many different places meet. So there's this sandy ridge, um, in portions of, um, in southeastern portions of, the county that grow the best peaches in the world. Georgia can call itself mm. the peach state, but it's mistaken. Um, <laughs> Glad we've corrected that. <laughs> well, South, South Carolina and specifically on that ridge, the peaches oh. grow especially sweet. But then where I grew up in um, up near Collier's um, community, which is um, sort of smack dab in the middle of the most Piedmont of the Piedmont, it's it's rolling hills and mixed pine hardwood forests and 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 those 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 ridges if you want to call them that those hilltops um, grade down into into creek bottoms 
So Chevis Creek, where I learned to fish, Dry Creek, Dry Branch, Turkey Creek, um, all of those places like that that then drain into um, many of them, Stevens Creek, and then finally into the Savannah River that separates Georgia from, from South Carolina. It was, and still is, a very wild place. Uh, growing up, there were more deer and wild turkey in South Carolina than or in Edgefield than, than people in the county. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that was at a time when people weren't seeing very many wild turkeys and they weren't seeing, believe it or not, very many white-tailed deer. But we, mm-hmm. ha- we had them in abundance. And, and so that nature of the county is part of what I fell in love with and am still in love with. And I think it gives... Um, I think it gives the place a different sort of hope beyond its infamy mm-hmm. as a, as a place of, of really a, a bitter politic that that really mm-hmm. people are even talking about today with uh, Preston Brooks, who was from Edgefield, the, the, the man who beat um, Sumner um, over the head. Preston Brooks was from mm-hmm. Edgefield. So even even today, you know, when people talk about history, it it often comes back. To home, and so mm-hmm. I have to reconcile the politics with the ecology and family um, to make it to have it be a place that I love in these ways, and and quite honestly, in some ways, despise. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I want to I want to pick up on on that again. I I do want to. Um... I, I am always interested in my whoever I'm talking to about kind of the spiritual or religious background of a childhood. Mm-hmm. And when I read you, it feels like 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 what you imbibed spiritually, um, both enriched and diverged from the way you were coming to make meaning in life. Would that be? <laughs> yes, yeah, it's uh, it's a braided stream for sure. Um. Okay. You know, I had something so interesting as I'm talking to you that is becoming clear to me that was just all the way through. I mean, I, I tried to read as much as I could, and including other interviews you've given. And when you use this language about being an edge creature, um, you know, and where you grew up, many different places meet, a braided, braided string, there's so much that you bring together in your imagination and your experience and your wisdom that comes together in your life and in your body that our culture doesn't always bring together, um, uh, at least overtly. Hmm. Um, you know, so, I mean, get one place to, to, to kind of dive into that would be the different kinds of influences that you've um, talked about that form you and that you impart as a teacher. Um, right. Aldo Leopold and Marvin Gaye. Um, Rachel Carson and Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> so start us there. Like, let us be your students into this way of seeing the world, walking into it. Well, Krista, I mean, it's, you know, for me, it, um, imagination is kind of this frontier that never ends. I mean, if, if, if you're lucky, um, it's, you, you get to, to always walk toward this horizon that's constantly moving away from you. So in, in imagining um, my, my life 
and 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 living and reimagining really um, the past, I, I think about those people who have influenced me. I mean that the people that I knew, family and and friends and teachers and schoolmates, but then people that I never knew personally that have had a pro a, a profound impact on me. Um, certainly. Aldo Leopold is 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 among them because uh, I, I remember picking up his book, A Sand County Almanac, in my brother's room. And my brother's room was a place that um, that you ventured into at great peril. Oh, OK, um, <laughs> this but, was a book from 1949. Yeah, from 1949. Uh-huh. And, and uh-huh. I happened to see it on his desk and it had and there were these birds these geese on the cover and it's become known as the, the goose head edition. But I saw it and I was like, what's my brother doing reading this? He was reading all sorts of stuff, but I didn't have any idea that he was interested in birds. And so I picked up this book and I just sort of flipped through it. I may have even stolen it for a day or two and, um, and fell in love with the words. I fell in love with the illustrations that were there that were just these sketches um, there was no color, but it was some of the most colorful reading, some of the most colorful writing that I had ever seen and, and reading that I had ever done. So mm-hmm. I, I, I sort of stored that in my memory banks because, you know, it, it it's not like I began to carry the book around then, but Leopold stuck. And some of that language stuck because I was living some of what he had written in terms of our family living off the land and and seeing my father work so very hard um, to make a life for us, my mother and my father make a life for us off the land. So Leopold stuck there in a way that, um, that, that wasn't evident to me really until lots of, of years later. Here's one way you just kind of summarize some of his admonitions that you kept with you. To be to be one of those who cannot live without wild things. Keep all the parts. Listen to the mountain. And preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. That, that says it all, right? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, it's amazing. You know, that, that if you can hoard... Um, if, if you can sort of hoard experiences, which I think is, is part of what I do... Uh, along with books and, and other things. But if you can hoard experiences out there, then for me, that that informs who I am. So so seeing my father um, burn a piece of land um, to keep it productive or being out with him when he was cutting a tree and thinking about Leopold's good oak and thinking about the annual rings in that tree as history and not just how the tree grew, then, then it, it, it helps me understand and, and sort of refine my place in the past, but also now. And, and hopefully my students, I, I ask them to write their own stories about the land, their own good oak stories, um, sort of their own histories and, and where they sit um, in the, in the pantheon. So, you know, that that was important. But then I'm I'm growing up with parents who were active in the civil rights movement and a, right. fa- and a father who had been um, really high up in the Edgefield Democratic Party, 
which there are not very many Democrats in Edgefield. But my my parents were very active. And I can remember hearing them saying, we shall overcome. And I remember being held in someone's arms at that point mm. in time. So I'm, I'm guessing this was probably um, even earlier than I had stated before. But I, I can remember their conversations and I can remember these recent memories of of Dr. King and, and what he had done. So, you know, Leopold and, and, and Martin Luther King sort of come together there. And, uh, you know, Marvin and the ecology comes in later. Well, okay, but, you know, I have to say, I, I played that song, Mercy, Mercy Me, which you, you, you said you, you teach Aldo Leopold to Sam County Almanac and Marvin Gaye's 1971 environmental anthem, Mercy, Mercy Me, together as convergent texts in conservation philosophy. It's quite embarrassing, but I have to say that I never, I, I've heard that song a million times and I had never really taken in the words. I, 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 am I, am I, I, I don't know if this makes me unusual, but I, I didn't know that it was an environmental anthem until you just told me here in 2021. Yeah, I, you know, the, the thing about it is that it is, um, that was written and performed in 70 or 71, I think. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at a 50-year-old song that unfortunately is relevant now because very little has changed. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I try and playing that for students, I want them to understand the importance of, I mean, not just music and, and art and literature and conservation, but I want them to understand how that art informs life. And I, I, I tell them, I don't want them 30 years from now saying, you know, my old head of a professor back in the day played this archaic song from the 70s that is still relevant in 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 2050. Um, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't want that to be the case. So I play it for them because it's I mean, it's a it's a groove I love, but I, I, I'm sorry. I think we should pay attention to sort of the static nature of of where we are um, environmentally. Yeah. But but then there's inner city blues. Right. And you, you play that. I play that for them as well. And that's mm. that's all of social condition. That's still the same or mm. worse. Yeah. Um. Yeah, some of the lines in here, I just pulled it up. Right? You know, where did all the blue skies go? Poison is the wind that blows from the north and south and east. Seas full of mercury, oil wasted on the oceans and upon our seas. You're right, nothing nothing that has changed. Um, um, you know, I, I want to keep going on all of this, but I realize I wanted to ask you also as rooting this, because we haven't really talked much about birds, and we've been speaking here for 23 minutes, <laughs> um, because you are so much about birds. Like, what was, what, was the, what was the first bird you fell in love with? I, I, we need to kind of, we need to anchor this conversation in that love of yours as well. You know, I, I go back to those snowbirds, to those juncos that yeah. would flock in, um, in frost and snow, and I would imagine that frost was snow sometimes because I wanted it so badly. But those little gray and white birds that my grandmother was throwing grits to um, and the sparrows that that were out there. So 
those those are are some of the first birds that I re- remember. And sometimes I would I, I had heard that if you salted a bird's tail, you could catch it. Um, <laughs> I, I would I would read that stuff and and of course I would try it. I mean, I never got close enough yeah. um, to them to do that. But the you know I, I write in the book about this sorrowful tale of this Christmas tale of a BB gun and a chipping sparrow. Yeah. And um, so that that made a great impression on me um, that even now when I see chipping sparrows, they're, they're some of the most beautiful birds to me. Um, and I, I can remember holding that bird in my hand um, shortly after I'd, I had killed it and thinking I could hide it from God and 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 I, I buried it in the yard to try and do that. But um, so those tiny birds, even though you know there were vultures that I buzzards as we called them back then that I laid out in the pasture trying to attract and hearing wild turkeys gobbling on spring mornings or barred owls on summer evenings, bobwhite quail which are, are probably in this thicket here. I've, I've got more representations of bobwhite quail around me than any other bird. And Do you have any, can you give me any of the song of them? If you're so good at that, is there any, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is there a little soundscape you can insert into this conversation? Yeah, a, a barred owl is, I mean, it's, <laughs> and you, you hear that on a, on a summer evening and and bobwhite quail are, are calling Cubby's home that <laughs> and, and and those those songs of of barred owls and bobwhite quail sort of I mean that book ended things. Hmm. Be, because those those barred owls were often the first, the last thing that you'd hear in the evening, and quail might be the first thing that you hear in the morning. So in between that, there were all these other birds, many of which I did not know the names of. Um, you know, yellow-billed cuckoos, my grandmother called them rain crows. Hmm. And, um, and so I would listen to those birds and hear that cow, 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 cow. And I would hear that. And um, initially, before I learned what those birds were, what yellow-billed cuckoos were, where they came from, I, before I thought about the science of the bird, I thought about the rain coming because my grandmother told me, well, Matha said, when you hear that bird, rain is coming. So the, so the birds, there was a different kind of ornithology, Krista, that I grew mm-hmm. up with that was um, sort of mystic before it was science. Yeah. You know, I have to say when I was reading you and I was actually reading a part where you where you said you said this a minute ago that wild turkeys were abundant there and not yet so much everywhere else. And that there are some wild turkeys in my neighborhood in St. Paul, Minnesota, who have absolutely claimed the neighborhood oh, during yeah. the pandemic. <laughs> Everybody went inside or I mean, people are out, but somehow they knew that we we were locked down <laughs> and this is their territory. Um, and they were gobbling away as I was reading you, you, you writing about wild turkeys gobbling, um, which was so which is kind of 
very mysterious and amazing every single time it happens. That was just, that was spring, right? That, that to me was the, I can remember I'd wake up very, very early because I had to leave my grandmother's house, walk over to my parents' house, um, get ready for school. And we needed to leave in order to be in Aiken by, I don't know, a quarter till eight, we needed to leave the house in Aiken by seven, which meant that I was probably, um, I was getting up, I don't know, five thirty or six o'clock. And so you walk outside and you're hearing turkeys gobbling and foxes barking. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and that, and, and, and that's a memory of those first chilly mornings of spring um, that that helped me set the seasons. Hmm. So, um, you know, Aldo Leopold, his he who his, who you've we've talked about as such an influence on you was all about care for people and care for the land and how those things go together. And it feels to me like I mean you you have that as well. But for you and you and you also add to that also in a way that um, reflects perhaps our time and place more intensely um, is care for land, care for people, care for the land and where culture and history, um, I guess, distort and intersect with those things. Hmm. Um, well, does, you know, Leopold, I, um, I, I sort of claimed as it's like this um, this grandfather that I never knew, and I've I've been fortunate and mm-hmm. to to know his daughter Estella Junior, and um, and I feel fortunate in in knowing that and being able to talk to her and 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 who I know Leopold as as a as a historic figure matches up with the person. And so even as, as, as we necessarily sort of deconstruct the past, um, I, I dig into Leopold and find him not perfect, but I find him still applicable um, mm-hmm. to, to my life in, in these very important ways that, you know, Leopold said that there were two things that interested him, um, you know, people and land and um, and our understanding of of each other, I think, is is reflective of the of, of how things play out through conservation, how things play out with our care for land or not caring for land and not caring for one another. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you you can't hate people and um, and and care for the earth, and you can't hate the earth and care for people. Right. Um, and I want to draw you out on something that you've you've written about, and and um, in many ways, it's you know you you said I am I am as much a scientist as I am a black man. My skin defines me no more than my heart does, but somehow my color often casts my love affair with nature and shadow. Um, and that's all about that's all about culture and history. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, um, that's one part of the book that, 
I think if if I were rewriting, I I would I would have to rethink how I state that because, mm-hmm. you know, identity is is so important in so many ways. How we identify ourselves and how others identify us, and and what I what I really wanted people to understand there, um, you know, I'm proudly a black man. I'm I'm proudly in the skin that I'm in. But I, I want people to see that. I want them to respect it, respect yeah. it. But I'm also a scientist. I'm an ornithologist, and and I, and I have this this life that is is defined in other ways that society doesn't define it. Yeah. And and so being out when I'm out, when I was out as a kid, I I didn't really have any awareness until I started interacting with with others who would point out um, sometimes negatively to them who I was to them. Uh, you know, Bart Owls never barked blackness to me and said, right. uh, you know, we're, we're discounting you because of who you are. So for all the labels that we can sort of hoard again to, to tell people who we are, what we do, um, who we love, all of those things. I think it's an important thing for people to understand the multifaceted nature of all of us. It also feels to me like your fascination with and the way you attend to and delight in and... um uh, honor the 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 um all the what what I I don't know what I mean just the 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 multifaceted colors and patterns and forms of the natural world I mean and you kind of you kind of just you kind of just demonstrated this also um is reflected in the way you. You see human beings and you see human society. Well, I, you know, to me, and I mean, it's that there, there's so much that's simple out there that appears simple, mm-hmm. but that's really complex. That, I mean, it's sort of like the sparrow that appears brown from far away and hard to identify. But if you just take the time to get to know that sparrow, then you see all of these hues. You see five, six, seven shades of brown on this bird, and you see little splashes of ochre or yellow or gray and black and white. And all of these things on this bird that at first glance just appeared to be brown. And and so in taking that time to ve- to delve into not just what that bird is but who that bird is and to to understand to get from some egg in a nest to where it is to grace you with its presence that it's taken for this bird trials and tribulations and and escaping all of these hazards and so I, I tend to think about I try to think about people as much as I can in mm. in that way that that each of us has had these struggles from 
the nest um, to, to where we have flown now and, and the journeys that, that we are on. And so I think when you, you try to take that time to understand beings in that way, mm. that there's a, there's a deeper relationship. And if you're lucky, there's some opportunity to, to share a path, to have some empathy and some experience. And though I can't be you and you can't be me, we can be at a point where we say, yeah, you know, we walked the same path at some point. Um, though we may not know one another, we can, we can share some experience that gets us a little closer together. And I, I think that's important. You know, something that um, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about um, uh, until I really deeply thought about it reading some of your writing is, I mean, you've, you've, you've done a lot of pondering about um, how slavery and the aftermath of slavery created this alienation of people from the land. And... I mean, there are many facets to this, right? Also, mm. you you know that people were once forced into nature, um, in places that that environments that we now pass through, and and even take refuge in, were once full of pain. Um, that the I don't know. There's a place where you're looking at, and the I guess the bird, the bobolink, is a bird that ha- is mm. very important in this story. Um, that there are rich habitats that you delight in that exist now that you study, um, but that they're 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 partly that way. Um, that the birds we you here's one you say the birds we see now they are there because of what 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 black people did under compulsion then. That this is uh, yeah. Hmm. Well, you know that's the um, that's the that's this constant tension mm-hmm. that that we're living in now this history of of the land again and so you know whether there are are trees growing over it that have have grown out of soil that people toiled or they there are rice fields that stretch as far as the eye can see that are that are only there because of black hands and, and we're watching black ducks and black neck stilts and hopeful for black rails in those places that were created by black human beings, mm. um, not voluntarily. So, mm. so enslavement um, is, is, is everywhere. I mean, it's, it's not just here in, in my home place and in the South, but I think about it in, in other places. And then I try to think in other landscapes about, the history um, and and what that means. So, Krista, to me again, it's they're inextricably linked. That that culture and and care. I mean, we have to understand where we've been. You know, I guess is the cliche. But when I see these landscapes, I cannot in 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 honoring what my ancestors endured in that nest, really to get me here to where I am fledged and flying, mm-hmm. I cannot in good conscience ignore the bitter for the beautiful. Um, right. And, and, and that, 
that is that is something that I try to teach my students or when I take people out on bird walks that as we as we see all of this beauty that we think about how it it got there that we consider these birds in the context of history and consider history in the context of of the birds so so yeah it sort of goes back to to hoarding experiences and um and and in that i think life becomes richer there's a there's a different depth to to the stew of you i mean you know we're all just these amalgams of of experiences and different people and you know and that cooks for a long time and um and so you know we all want that deep rich savory um life and i think that that adds to it um would you tell the story of the Babo links, like how focusing on this particular bird kind of points at the forgotten history of, of public lands? Yeah, you know, bob Bobo links are extraordinary birds. I mean they they are blackbirds. They um but they they have a sort of a different pattern um to them and they 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 give this appearance almost of being tuxedoed um, in appearance, but they they spend like like me they spend life um, in two different places. They spend um, a good portion of their non breeding cycle in South America, so on the pampas and you know in these exotic places where we think about gauchos and and llanos and those kinds of things. But they're they're there in those grasslands. And then in the spring, they migrate north to to breeding grounds that um, are mostly north temperate, but they migrate through the southeast just as um, the rice crop that enslaved would have worked in these marshes to plant, just as some of these plants are coming into um, a stage where they provide can provide sustenance um, for these birds. And, and the birds would descend on these crops. And, and you're mm-hmm. talking about crops that meant um, millions and millions of dollars to these white planters. And, um, and the enslaved had worked dawn to dusk trying to grow it. And so it became incumbent upon them um, to keep the birds out of the crop these rice birds as they Oh, and it sounds known. like there were also millions of birds, right? Yes. Millions Mi- of bottlenecks. Mil- millions of, I mean, just hordes of them. So, mm-hmm. you, so you, you can imagine, you know, skies darkening with birds and then those birds descending onto a rice crop. And, um, and so sometimes people would, would have to stay up through the night to disturb the birds, to, oh, to, to get them, to, to get them, keep them from roosting in the rice crops and, um, and they would kill the birds, and so and sometimes one of the delicacies was to to eat these birds um, full of rice, mm. and um, but so so and then the birds would continue on their trek northward, but then would come back in the fall on their way back to um, their wintering grounds in South America, and they would hit the rice crops again. So um, this this relationship of bobolinks to enslaved black people 
and to the land and to rice culture and to um, the people who were making decisions not only about keeping people enslaved, but telling a nation that they needed to keep people enslaved. I don't have to go very far to think about birds being connected to bondage and then conservation um, being connected to, to the Constitution in these ways. And so all of that through that little bird that has this amazing, amazing sort of discordant, broken music box of a song Yes. Can you, I can, I, there was a, I think you wrote something for Audubon and they had a link to listen to it. And it, yeah, I, could you, could you share that? Yeah. I mean, it's uh gosh, I wish I could imitate it. It's, 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 it's just, <laughs> and, and it, and it, and it, and it, and it, you hear that. And again, it's a, it's a sound of spring because the, mm-hmm. the birds mm-hmm. will, will often call as they, and they migrate at night. And so you can you can hear a bobble link before you see it. And then okay. and, and when they first when they first come into an area, um, they're, they're really they seem to be pretty shy and they'll stay down at the base of, uh, of, a, of the grass in a field. And so you can hear them and they'll pop up for a second and then they're right back down. But as as the season progresses, they become bolder. And the, the males begin to, to, to sing really um, uh, zealously, and, and there they are. You know, this tuxedoed bird with this broken music box of a song that is headed further north. But while it's with you in that place, you can connect it to all that was in the past. Hmm. Um, but now it's a bird that's declining for several reasons. And so, you know, when I, when I talk about my ornithology and, and, and what my grandmother taught me, I, I'm realizing that part of the way that I teach ornithology and people about birds now is, is born in part of her telling me about birds in a different way. And I want people to, to see birds not just as things to count or to list um, and that's an important aspect of, of it all, but I, I want them to see the stories in these birds and to be able to, to, to travel back through time and understand, um, what it may have exacted on people. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also to understand where we are now and how we can protect those, those birds. And so again, it's that it's trying to get that linkage, trying to braid that stream again so that things are running together in a way that we say, you know, we got to keep all the parts um, because if we don't, then then what do we suffer in losing um, all that we've worked for, all that others have worked yeah. for? You, you wrote a beautiful um, piece called Elegy in Three Plagues. Hmm. In 2020, which we are thankfully no longer in, (laughs) although nothing feels that different, but still, symbolically. Um, But I think you, you know, I think you 
put something in writing that also marks, I don't know, it will be so interesting to see if five years from now and 10 years from now and 50 years from now, if there's a, if it really was, I mean, a turning point, I, ho- I hope it was a turning point in so many ways, right? That's going to have to play out over time. But um, um, one of the things that happened that, it, and it was interesting to read that even you, you spend your time um, in the natural world, attending to the natural world, loving the natural world. Um, but it was still even a new experience for you, and it was an experience a lot of people had. Um, that all of the, the travel you'd been doing or the wild excursions you'd been doing um, were, were, you were sent instead into your backyard. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, your backyard lawn and your Adirondack chair. Um, and that also was an experience of discovery. Yeah, and still is in many ways. It, um, you know, quarantine and, and being sort of sentenced to home in a way is, I mean, it's different so, for so many of us. But yeah. f- but for, for, for me, it was, it was sudden stop, right? It was mm-hmm. um, because I was approaching my migratory period when, you know, that part of the year <laughs> when I'm right. following the birds. Uh, and uh, and sitting back there in the backyard for for weeks, for months, and and just watching the seasons come and go and the birds with them, it it led me again to this sort of reappreciation of home and this um, this deepening of of that appreciation, this intensity of it. So it's it's sort of like the you know, the leftovers that get better <laughs> up to a point, mm, yeah. you know, they're not there. We don't appreciate them when we first cook them. And then we're like, oh, wow, you know, that that soup is really good two days mm. later. So the backyard became that. And there were these birds, things like rose-breasted grosbeaks that, um, that I was hearing from my friends and seeing on social media that they were having them in their backyard. And I haven't, hadn't gotten any rose breasted gross beaks yet, but then suddenly there they were one morning and, and I'm, I'm sitting out there um, between zoom meetings or after class and watching these birds. And they were sticking around for longer than I remember them or longer than I had been at home to see them before. Yeah. And it made me realize just how much on the go I had been, but also um, just what these birds were doing, that these were birds that had come from Central America and many of them had come through the Caribbean and, and now they were with me. Yeah. And, and then I was going to send some of those birds to Vermont and New Hampshire and Minnesota and that there was no way for anyone to prove because these birds weren't marked that birds that I was seeing one week weren't the birds that they were seeing the next week. And so I began to imagine sort of that connecting, but sitting by my plastic pond full of little fish and frogs. Um, and sometimes with a beverage was, um, you know, that was sort of the, a daily, saving grace in a way. Yeah, you even used the word pilgrimage, um, mm-hmm. pilgrimage to your backyard. I think you say, you say some things that feel so helpful to me um, about, 
the importance and the the beauty uh, and the goodness of learning about the common birds. Hmm. Um, and yeah, just I mean, this imagination you have, it, it, I, I don't have to be an ornithologist to, to to kind of take that in, right? To think about how. You, you say to think about how important your backyard can be for birds, that it can be critical space for them to grab food, that that they that they lift off hmm. for faraway places. And your backyard has been a place that fueled that and that you witness this rest and refueling and respite in their creaturely existence. I found that so helpful. <laughs> um, I found it like something that any of us can pick up. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're fortunate to, I mean, I, I took backyard for granted, right? And yeah, and those of us who got to go to the backyard were yeah. lucky, right? We were the yeah. fortunate, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 but that, but then, and and seeing those gross beaks that were exotic, I was watching those gross beaks interact with my cardinals, my you know grandmother's mm-hmm. red birds. That, I mean, how, who can ignore? that who can ignore a, a red bird so in thinking about those cardinals i can remember seeing yeah there would be you know eight or a dozen rose-breasted grosbeaks back there but then there were eight or ten cardinals and i began to to know some of these cardinals um you know by crest character or a female mm. that appeared just a little redder than another female or even behavior or where they like to perch or watching a cardinal, watching a red bird as the sun would go down on, um, on a day, the end of a day that still had a little bit of chill in it and watching a bird sit in the last shafts of sunlight, watching the setting sun blaze through that bird to me, um, it gave me this appreciation again for for the things that we often pass by that that cardinals as common as they might be for some of us that if if you look at those cardinals carefully again and just let your let let your mind be with that cardinal and then the cardinal and then the sparrow the song sparrow that you begin to develop this appreciation for these these birds that are around you all the time and that there is a there is a difference between this red and that red and 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 then the cardinal becomes as special as the rose-breasted grosbeak or the Mm. warbler that's wandered into your yard so common um you know is a is a word that sort of dismisses um, sometimes what we should be paying attention to. Yeah. I, um, I, I feel like I, I can't, I, I feel, I don't know, there's part of me that really wants to make this confession to you, which is it's something I've thought so much about in my life that I know I didn't have a grandmother or, um, I didn't have, I didn't have family like you did that taught me the names of birds or, or really that pay, paid attention to them. Um, and I also, in my backyard, I don't know, maybe I see some of those cardinals here in Minnesota that you saw in your yard. Um, mm. You're right. It's arresting. And um, and I tend to think red bird rather than like your grandmother <laughs> rather than cardinal. 
Um, and I've always wondered. Uh, I feel I feel ashamed of this that I don't know the names, um, and I also think I've kind of felt like it's too late to start. So I will just appreciate them. Um, I don't know. Do you have any advice for me on that? I have no idea how 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 um, how many people are like this, or if this is my problem. Well, it's it's not a problem. It's uh, you know I I think people have appreciated human beings have appreciated birds from from the get go. You know, yeah. and, and um, but there's there's no shame in not knowing the name of a bird. If, if it's a red bird to you, it's a red bird to you. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's at some point as a scientist, um, it's important for me to be able to identify birds by accepted common names and Latin names and and mm-hmm. those things. But then I revert frequently to what my grandmother taught me because I say the birds know who they are. They, you you, you don't, they don't need you to tell them that. But over time, when, when we relax into a thing, when, when you relax into those birds and, 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 and maybe not counting them initially and maybe just being with the bird, then, then, you know, your brain kind of um, relaxes, it loosens Mm-hmm. And things soak in. And and I, I think that's the, the key with a lot of learning. But as I have grown and I learn from people that I teach about birds, um, how much they love birds, that they may not be able to get all of the names right. But not getting the name right immediately does not in any way diminish their ability to appreciate the pretty, as Aldo mm-hmm. Leopold talks about, and so right, right. So seeing that bird, seeing mm-hmm. seeing that bird, and saying, "Oh my God, what is that? Look at it!" and and you're looking yeah. at it, and you can see all of these hues, and you can watch its behavior, and you may hear it sing. Well, in that moment, it's a beautiful thing, no matter yeah. what its name is. So um, I, I don't think there's any shame in appreciating beauty. And in fact, sometimes what I try to get people to do is to disconnect for a moment from that, that absolute need to list and name and just see the bird. Just see that bird. And you begin to absorb it in a way, in a part of your brain that I don't know the name of, but I think it's a part of your brain that's also got some heart in it. And yeah. then and, and then guess what? The the name when you do learn it, it sticks in a different way. Right. Yeah, I I I don't think I can count the number of times. If I think about it, I think I almost always say the same thing, but it always feels like a huge statement when I've seen some of these beautiful birds. Um mm. I I like I it's like Oh my, aren't you beautiful, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> and, and that's enough. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, to kind, of, to kind of wander back into the realm of complexity, I mean, you've written so interestingly about how they're, it, all the naming in science and in Western culture has, has been problematic as well. And, and even the question of, 
what wildness is hmm. is a more complicated who who gets to say that right and yeah and when it was said and how it was acted on um is so much more complicated uh than might seem obvious again that intersection of culture and place and land and well and who, humans well I, you know uh, it sticks one of the things that sticks with me um from from current culture and 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 Hamilton even and, and mm. thinking about um, who gets to tell the story, right? Yeah. And and the names and so I'm I'm intensely interested in language and um, and what different people call things and and these names and what names mean so that that indigenous and First Nations people. Who 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 have this diverse all the, all of these languages, yeah. and 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 who a raven is to to one nation versus who the raven is to another nation or people within that nation, you know. So all of that is important, I think, for us to to pay attention to, and all of those are different ornithologies. Mm. You know, we we in in Western science we we boil down to Latin binomial and to um, genotype and and that's that's in phenotype and all of that is critical and it's important in what we do as scientists. But I think again, sort of broadening the scope of vision so that we see the big picture, we need to understand who birds are to others. Um, what land is to others that if mm. I if my ancestors were forced into nature and hung from trees, I might not have the same interest in going out into the forest and and naming the trees. So um, that's that's a recognition I think that some are slowly coming around to, but it it's. It's just often too easy, Krista, to fall into this, the, the paradigm of, uh, you know, I think that I shall never see. So uh, th- that is part of my mission, um, to, to, to offer a different prism mm-hmm. that, that people can um, maybe, maybe take a glimpse through. Um. You know this 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 essay you wrote, "Elegy in Three Plagues." Um, it's about it, 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 it's it's about a lot of things, and and um, I mean it's about 2020, but it's also about how 2020 was a microcosm of everything that we have to deal with for the rest of our lifetimes. Mm. Um, but you have this sentence, and this may not be fair to just pull out a sentence and ask you to say what you're saying, but. Um, I just found it so stunning. Um, it's it's kind of you're kind of summarizing where where some of this takes you. You said our task then has been pathfinding, and of course you're making ecological analogies. Has been pathfinding through the improbable without ending up at the inevitable. Hmm. Well, um, who could have predicted any of this? Mm-hmm. Well. Uh, you know, well, it's <laughs> um, some of it we could. Yeah, so, some it. some of it we could. But, yeah. but but then it, you know, um, five, six, ten years ago, um, we would have said, okay, 
if this happens and this and this and this and this at the same time, um, and we would say, oh, no, that that's that's not yeah. that's not probable. That's a movie. Right. That's a, it's not that, real life. <laughs> that's a that's a movie that I don't want to see. Right. Um, and 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 to try to get through that. You know, to try to get through that to some place of 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 how do you get through that to be whole on the other side? Yeah. How how do you how do how do you how do you track that path in a way that doesn't send you careening over some hillside into some abyss from which you can never climb out? And uh, yeah, that's sort of the 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 daily task now, mm-hmm. because you know all of these things are are sort of have tossed down in the trail in front of you. They've fallen like trees. They're coming down the upslope down towards you like rocks that have been knocked loose by something up there, and you don't know what it is. And and you've got to try to get through all of that. That you, yeah. You knew the trail may get rocky, but you never thought that it would get this rocky. Yeah. And so here you are. So how do you get through that improbable? How do you mm-hmm. how do you get through that? And for for me, Krista, it's been, part of it. It's been birds. Yeah. You know, it's it's been um, it's been family. It's been it's been friends, though distant, who. Um, still let you know that they care for you. Um, it's, it's been in the absence of travel, um, trying to, to make do with the contact that you can make. And so that, that again is, is this, um, you know, that's all of our challenge and, and these challenges that, that we have. And just when you round a bend in this path and have gotten through trees falling and boulders coming down hills <laughs> right. and right. Hidden, hidden vipers um, mm-hmm. striking at you, that there in the trail stands a bear. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you got to figure out whether it's a grizzly bear or a black bear or whether you make yourself big or you roll over and play dead. And... Um, and, and as you as you're doing all of that, you know, it's you, you can't think about what's beyond the bear. You got to handle the bear. And that's sort of where, you know, sort of where we are. But you got to handle the bear and hope that a tree doesn't fall on your head or a boulder doesn't crush you. So, you know, when I wrote that. That essay um, and, and that essay was really um it's it, sort of this compilation of as much as I keep a journal. And, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, I think of these things as plagues again. I go back to my grandmother because she, man, she used to always talk about the end of the world. Yeah. And, um, and that stuck with me. And I, I, in my, in my kid brain, I, you know, I was imagining frogs and locusts, locusts and, yeah. <laughs> and all of that stuff. Yeah. But mm-hmm. she never told me about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, I, you know, 
in some ways I, I wonder what she would say, but then I, I track back to ancestors again. And certainly they thought had to think of chattel slavery as a plague. And how do you get through that? Yeah. Um, for my parents, yeah. how did they get through Jim Crow? Yeah. Um, you know, how, how do people, um, who were abused to get through the day and tough times, not knowing whether, um, where the blows will come from. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I try to, I'm trying, it's a practice, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to tread carefully, um, trying to get through it as best I can. And it's not always easy because this just seems like an uphill hike in mud. Yeah. You know, one of the um, the themes that's come through in a lot of conversations I've had in the in the last couple of years, actually, um, is the relationship that it almost it feels countercultural and and you know almost dubious to talk about, but the relationship between justice and joy, hmm. and the importance of knowing what you love in order to have the resilience and the and in order to be able to walk to to um to know what you need to fight and what needs to be re- rebuilt and remade and brought, um you know you obviously you take joy in in as in being an ornithologist and you've also said and you you actually say you know you know as a scientist this is almost not a scientific statement that you hear joy in birdsong mm. um so I just I I wonder I wonder um, I feel like you shine a, a a very distinct light on this notion um, of justice and joy and I just wonder what you how you might reflect on that. Well, I I do think that um, that joy in part is the justice we give ourselves, um, mm. and for for me, you know the 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 songs of birds are important and they, you know, they, they signal the beginning of the day and and the end of it and, and, and what birds are doing in, in their lives and, um, and, and carrying on. But I, I think, I think joy must be something you try to have joy as something that no one can take from you. Yeah. Um, that it, that it's something that you can hoard and mm-hmm. and and you can hold in your heart in a way and you can protect that joy in a way that when all of those things on this rough trod trail around you are threatening you that you at some quiet moment can pull that joy out and experience it and even if it's just for a moment, you know, that's the bird flying through the yard. That's the cardinal. Yeah. Um, that's the song. That's the memory of, of something good that you say, you know what? Um, and my grandmother used to sing this song, you know, um, you know, the world didn't give it. The world can't take it away. And, right. and, and so in, in that in that sort of in that sense of joy that um that that justice is um you know it's a it's a long time coming for 
for for many of us. But how do you sustain again um, until 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 you get it? Until until you are um, or to you you are in that place. And I and and I, I believe for me, I have to find those moments daily. And again, uh-huh. it's a it's a struggle sometimes. You know, it's a it's a struggle sometimes to um to endure all of this stuff and to say, ah, there it is. You know, as you said, as you said, that bird, ah, look at that. Yeah. And look at that. And and I've I've had those days where it's just nothing is is going right. And um and it seems like there's more coming that's gonna go wrong. And um and there's a a, a wren. <laughs> you know, there's a pair of wrens in the backyard that I know are probably sort of the resident wrens. And, uh, you know, I watched them bring off a brood this past spring when I was sitting there in the Adirondack chair. And I wonder about those wrens and and, and how they are. Mm -hmm. But in that moment of that little brown bird that's always so inquisitive that 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 sings reliably. In that moment that I'm thinking about that wren, I'm not thinking about anything else. Mm -hmm. That's joy. Mm-hmm. And and so sometimes I think we have to we have to learn to recognize the joy that the world didn't give us and that um, the world can't take away in the midst of the world taking away what it can. Yeah. So um, you know, justice is is is. I don't think I don't think justice is a, a destination. I think it's a journey. Yeah. And. Um, and in, and in understanding that, that there are things for me that were better than my parents had, but that we all have to work um, to get to that next place on, on the path. And so that's to me, Krista, sort of how I link the two, that the only way I get from one point to the next in that trajectory of you know, legacy from parents and Jim Crow to me and, you know, integration and, and moving to where I, we are now as a family and as, uh, as a people, as a country, even if I can't find joy, it's going to be hard for me to make it to right. that next justice point. Right. So it's important. And, and as hard as it is to, to, to say, to find it, sometimes it's in a song. You know, my grandmother sometimes mm-hmm. would just sing and, mm-hmm. you know, that was her joy mm. or just hum, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How does that, how do those runs sound in your backyard? Oh, gosh. You know, there's this, um, one of their songs is this tea kettle song is tea kettle, tea kettle, tea, tea kettle, tea kettle, tea kettle, tea kettle, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's the, it's one of the first songs that, that you hear in the morning, but Ren sing all year long. But what I know now is that as the days get sort of incrementally longer, their songs get stronger. And, and, and both of them will sing. And this is mid-January. You know, sometime in March, just a couple of months away, you know, when we're marking a year 
really from when um, backyards became sort of um, you know our, our bastions of of, mm-hmm. of of quarantine that those wrens will begin to build nests mm-hmm. and and they'll begin this cycle of making more of themselves <laughs> and in that there's a there's some there's some hope there's some there's some joy um, there is 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 some inspiration for looking forward, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and that to me is, um, is what, you know, a little brown bird singing tea kettle, tea kettle, <laughs> tea kettle, tea. That's, that's, that's what it brings. I mean, cause mm-hmm. that's, they're audacious birds. They're small, but they are, um, they're some of the loudest birds out there. And uh, they're inquisitive. There's no crevice, crack, or cranny in the backyard that they don't know about. <laughs> okay. I'm going to look for them. Um, do they come to Minnesota? You know, um, yeah, occasionally. It's, you know, okay. that climate change, unfortunately, has kind of expanded the world of some birds, including Carolina wrens. And so they, they will... Their range is expanding north, but then when there are harsh winters, um, they're pushed back. So um, I think there are some Carolina wrens in uh, in portions of, of Minnesota now, but you know, just a, a, a decade or two ago, they they probably were not. Um, it would have been something that 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 birders may have, have been clamoring over to see, but I'm willing to bet you that. Um, you know, the Carolina wrens find their way into okay. into the north. <laughs> I just want to ask you a couple more questions and then and then do some reading. Sure. Um, so obviously we're not going to have time to talk about this, but in your memoir, you um, you mentioned this evolution you underwent in your late 20s from your transition from being a wine-drinking, cheese-eating ecologist <laughs> to being a beer-swilling, venison-chewing, wildlife biologist. <laughs> and I just thought maybe um, as we as we wind up, I, I, I like to talk, and I've, you know, in some ways you've been exploring this all along, but, to ha- you know, your evolution as a human being and as a scientist, and there were some intriguing things I saw you saying um, along these lines. Um um, more, for example, more and more, I find myself taking the hard data and wrapping it in genuine caring. Or this, um, time is teaching me to extend the philosophies of science to life. I just wonder if you'd, if I could draw you out on those, on that evolution. What, what, what are you thinking of? Yeah, go on. Well, you know, um, evolution again. It, it's a trajectory, right? With no, mm-hmm. with no endpoint and perfection. So, for me, it's it's just sort of all about um, having taking taken the experiences of the past and adapting, uh, using them to to adapt to to what is now and and maybe what's to come. So, you know, when I went from sort of this you know, from one place of, 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 of being the, the, the guy who didn't necessarily want people, I, I didn't want to, to have to address the questions of, um, of race and bias and, and prejudice and, and things that I had experienced, but I wanted people to just see me as a scientist. 
I just, I, I, you know, and this was before um, social media and people could just, you know, look you up and there you are. Um, and and I began to, to realize that as, especially as I was writing and I was thinking about questions of identity, that that understanding who it is that you are is is part of your evolution hmm. that mm. that that you begin to look inward to understand why you why you feel the way you do about this thing or that thing and and then things like ancestry become important to you and and thinking about the nest from from which uh, the egg from which you hatched the nest from which you fledged um all of that is 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 a part of everyone's evolution and so my own evolution you know that goes from you know straddling time between the ramshackle and the ranch to mm-hmm. being a college professor um to being this this person now um is all of that again is this this sort of hoarded cache of experiences that have led me to be able to to hopefully survive these plagues hmm. and and that's the importance of of evolution you can't predict what obstacles are going to be ahead of you and pre-evolve to them um, okay you, that's so good to think about that way yeah well you you hope that you're yeah. that there's enough flexibility and resilience. Um, you mm-hmm. talked about that earlier, that there's enough somehow built in to you that you can bounce back. Mm-hmm. That's that. So, so that's what I'm hoping for. I, you know, I, I, I wish I kept, I, I just bought this journal that asks about intention and expectation and that sort of thing. And I'm going to try it um, to, to see where it takes me. But so much of this has been fortune and um and and seat of the pants and and going <laughs> yeah. and going with the the flow that mm-hmm. that that comes again, braided streams sometimes they flood so violently that it looks like one great sea, and you can't see where the streams were and I think right. that's sort of where we are right now, and so some days it's just important to be able to turn over on your back, float, and keep your head and your nose up to breathe. And breathe mm-hmm. and breathing we can't take for granted. We know that. We, we know that. Yeah. So we know that again. Um I do love um this feels you you there are many there have been many mission statements and in in what you've been saying. I, I, I liked I liked this thing you wrote, which has a lot of theological, religious imagery. But as you've made that your own, you said, doing good things for and revering nature are just acts. There is righteousness in conserving things, staving off extinction, and simply admiring the song of a bird. In my moments of confession in front of strangers talking about my love of something greater than any of us i become a freer me i am reborn yeah i you know as much as i um 
I ran from my grandmother's first Sunday God. Um, you know, I worship every bird that I see and wildness is a wayward weed. Um, and, but, but it's, but it's also worthy of, of adoration and, and worship. So each time I see in those things that, um, are flying or that are wild and free, I, I see a, a bit of me in that. And, um, and, and then, uh, that, that whole creation story, my grandmother used to tell me about, I become a part of that, you know, um, and, <laughs> right, I, and, yeah. I, and I get to, and I get to evolve through it. So, um, my mother, my grandmother <laughs> never mentioned that word evolve, but no. um, part of what she taught me gave me the strength to do it. So um, that's that's sort of how I see things, Krista, that they are, that we're just part of this process, you know, and um, that if, if, if we take our place in it and And, and, and sometimes go with the flow, um, then we'll find ourselves in some pretty fantastic places. Um, <laughs> sometimes you gotta, sometimes you gotta fly against the, into headwinds. Um, and we've, seems like we're, we're, we're doing that now, but I'm, I'm hopeful that those winds turn and, and we're able to have warm winds at our back and, and get to where we need and want to be. Hmm. Oh, thank you. Isn't it, I feel like you were touching on um, what feels to me like just one of the strangest things about us as creatures that just becoming fully ourselves hmm. is the work of a lifetime. Oh, that's it. That That is, that's, that's the practice. <sighs> that's the practice, but it seems it's, it, it's, um, it is. I just think it's profoundly strange um, and interesting. I agree. I, you know, it's again, it's um, you, you can go back and you can think about what you thought your life or life or the world would be like. And, um, and you get taught the lesson of, of the profoundly strange Right, things that you could yeah. not have imagined that were improbable, and you you're living in them, um, and then you hopefully get through them, and you're on the other side somehow, and you can't quite figure out how you did it, um, <laughs> but then there was some joy that you held on to somehow, yeah, and there you are, and then the next adventure presents itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so I, you know, the part, the, the section I just read to you, I, I actually love to hear you read this, the, that, the passage that's from in, um, you call, this is your chapter called New Religion yeah. in, uh, in the home place. Maybe starting at, um, at the bottom of 175, if teaching is preaching, and then to the end of that chapter, it's such an incredible final paragraph too. Okay. From New Religion. 
If teaching is preaching, I've become a warmer, gentler pastor, more like the clergy at my mother's church. Maybe it's appropriate that these years have given me new spiritual release too. I've settled into a comfortable place with the idea of nature and God being the same thing. Evolution, gravity, change, and the dynamic transformation of field into forest move me. A warbler migrating over hundreds of miles of land and ocean to sing in the same tree once again is as miraculous to me as any dividing sea. Doing good things for and revering nature are just acts. There is righteousness in conserving things, staving off extinction, and simply admiring the song of a bird. In my moments of confession in front of strangers, talking about my love of something much greater than any one of us, I become a freer me. Each time I am reborn. For all those years of running from anything resembling religion and all the scientific training that tells me to doubt anything outside of the prescribed confidence limits, I find myself defined these days more by what I cannot see than by what I can. As I wander into the pre-dawn dark of an autumn wood, I feel the presence of things beyond flesh, bone, and blood. My being expands to fit the limitlessness of the wild world. My senses flush to full, and my heartbeat quickens with the knowledge that I am not alone. Thank you. I, I also have the, I have Sparrow Envy, the field guide to birds and lesser beasts, mm-hmm. which, which also contains poems that are, that are collected in your book of poetry. I mean, I have a couple, is there anything, um, I, I'm, I, ha- I wrote down a couple that I, I would be interested in you reading, but yeah. I wonder if there's anything just flowing out of what we just talked about that feels like you'd want to read. You know, it's, um, if, if I have a, a, a joy poem, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's love for a song. Yeah, I've got that one on here. Okay, <laughs> why don't you read that? Love for a song. Love is barter. Love is bits of affection traded for pieces of adoration. It is desire doled out on the whippoorwill's summer wanting. It is our craving for the meadowlark's ringing song, our longing for spring's greening from our sun-starved spirits down to our bare-toed roots. We seek the winding path and wander until we find the sweet spots. Blackwater cypress swamp, tall grass prairie sweep, the place where moonlight glancing off of tide-slicked stones makes us weep. We want the wild soul and a shadow-dwelling wood thrush heaps it on us in self-harmonizing sonata. We revel in wildflowers bloom, marvel in the migratory sojourns of birds dodging falling stars. Sink yourself deep in the dizzying dance of pollen-drunk bees. Find hope in the relieved canopies of the tallest trees. Wind and water, storm and surf, 
they can move us to other ends. Therein is the turn-on. It's the honey-sweet seduction. Nature asks only that we notice. A sunrise here, a sunset there. The surge, that overwhelming, inexplicable thing in a swallow's joyous flight, or the dawning of new light that melds heart and head into sensual soul, in that moment of truly seeing, that is love. Oh, thank you so much, Drew. Um, this is so beautiful, and I, I'm just really glad you're in the world. I'm glad <laughs> to have like I'd heard of you, but I to really die, to really steep in this was just such a joy and um, kind of a a balm <laughs> in this moment. And uh, I'm so excited to put this out into the world. So thank you for what you do. Well, Krista, thank you so much for. Um, for for giving the world these conversations and and hope and joy and illumination, and um, and and that's critical now. So thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm grateful. I'm sorry that we weren't able to do this at the festival, kind of in person. But hopefully, um, we will both get to be a little bit more migratory again one day, <laughs> and <laughs> and perhaps we'll find ourselves. Perhaps our, our paths will cross. Um, I'll, I'll but, look forward to that. Yeah, me too.